Bro, has Suze been a pain in your ass? <laughs> no, Susie's the best thing that ever happened. Susie's like the actual wings underneath narrative news. Yeah, she put some money in, but she's like an actual angel. The whole angel investor thing never made more sense. Ready to raise capital? It's time to get your dose of investment insights with the Investment Fix podcast. Brought to you by New Zealand Trade and Enterprise. Kia ora, I'm Dylan Lawrence, General Manager of Investment at New Zealand Trade and Enterprise. On today's episode of the Investment Fix, we're talking angel investment, and I'm with Bro Johnson, the co-founder and CEO of Narrative News, and Suze Reynolds, Executive Chair of the Angel Association of New Zealand and founder of Angel HQ. Suze also sits on the advisory board for Narrative News and was the lead investor in Narrative News Seed Round back in 2019. Welcome, Suze. Welcome, bro. I'm really excited to talk with the two of you today because as we talk through your joint experience, we're going to learn a lot about the importance of alignment of people and purpose and investment partnership, and also that process that you go through to find that aligned investor. And for many, angel investments, that first experience that you take on that journey of getting a professional investor into your business and how important it is to get that right. Bro, I'm going to kick it off and I'm going to throw to you. Can you give us a quick rundown of what's Narrative Muse all about and your motivation for starting it? Yeah, cool. Narrative Muse is a platform that helps audiences find really great recommendations of books, movies, and television shows. And all of our recommendations are pieces of content that are either by or about women and gender diverse books. And where we're going is to make our platform incredibly helpful and accessible for all audiences to find not only great recommendations, but for it to be a central platform for you to read and watch your content and know where you can go find stuff. That can be one of the bigger challenges for audience members. And what we're doing is also helping content producers who work in publishing in the screen production industry to better understand this underserved audience. So there's a giant audience out there that doesn't have a whole bunch of stories being told about them. So we're helping content producers better understand what they want, what they're looking for, the attributes of that content, and to help them make new stuff. Fantastic. So Suze, this is your second time as a guest on the Investment Fix. Welcome back. For the uninitiated out there, can you give us a really quick recap of what an angel investor is and an update on what New Zealand's angel network has been up to since we last spoke? For sure. An angel investor is typically a high net worth individual. We are less inclined to talk about angel investor in some ways because some people have some issues with the terminology itself and the space that we're occupying is becoming a broader and broader church. So I'm increasingly talking about early stage venture investors and that covers individual angels through to pre-seed funds like Matu and then up the value chain a little bit further because we're all actually investing in people and we're all depending on quite your context, investing early stage. In terms of the New Zealand angel scene, since we last talked, we just held our angel summit last week, which was just so cool. The theme was really hugely uplifting and inspiring. We talked about go big or go home. It was one of the first themes that we had that seemed to kind of resonate and run through the whole conference. The degree of alignment and passion about New Zealand going big or going home, it was almost tangible. And one person said at the end of the summit how excited he was because he felt like he had a room of 100 people who were all totally aligned about what we were trying to achieve in New Zealand. 
I talk quite a lot about the fact that I feel like New Zealand itself is a startup, showing the world that it's possible to create outsized value and impact through deep empathy for people and the planet, and that we're going to kind of be the vanguard for how to do this thing in a really sustainable, hugely valuable way. I'm super excited about that, and it was super cool to feel all the energy in the room for that, including people like our Deputy Prime Minister, who was pretty jazzed about being there too. That's powerful. You just described angel investment or early stage investment as investing in people and mm-hmm. investing in the early stage. If we look at Narrative Muse, you invested in that in, back in 2019. I'm really interested to find out a bit about how you and Bro met and how did you discover Narrative Muse and what was it that attracted you to invest? This is kind of a fun story and I think there are some lessons in it for others in that Bro and I were introduced by a colleague in the ecosystem and we first got together. My abiding memory is sitting with Bro in the backbencher pub and she was telling me all about what she was going to do and my little brain was going, oh, I don't think I quite get that, but I can see your passion and I can see that you're really deeply connected to this. You have a powerful affinity for it. And I was encouraging and said, keep in touch and let me know how that goes. And bless your little socks, bro, you kept in touch. And through that, over the course of a couple of years, I think, just letting me know when they had their little MVP out and I shared that with my book club and they were like, oh yeah, no, this is really cool. I get this. And then as that grew and developed, it really embedded it in my bone marrow the alignment for me. I quite often talk about the reason that I do this thing is because I fundamentally believe that the more we are doing business with each other, trading across borders, the less likely we are to kill each other. That sounds pretty extreme, but actually for me, it is that deeper context. You could see why narrative news work for me because surfacing underserved audiences, helping marginalized communities to be surfaced and be seen and be heard. If we can put that on steroids and blow that out to the world, imagine the impact that we could have. Yeah, that's why I'm here today. And in actual fact, when you talked about me being on the advisory board, I'm actually on the board board now. Mm -hmm. And we've got our first proper board meeting next week, which we're really excited about. We've got a couple of stunning independent board members that we might talk about later and how we found them too. So we're on the journey. We're away. Fantastic. Congratulations, bro. I'm really keen to get your reflections on first meeting Suze and what attracted you to Suze as an angel investor. I'm totally to call out the person who connected us, which is Rory McGillicuddy, because I have a lot of gratitude for that introduction. So as we all know, introductions are everything. They're the start to all relationships, all partnerships. And Rory could see that what I was interested in might be something that Suze might be interested in too. Meeting Suze, I didn't really know very clearly what we were trying to do, which is why it probably didn't make a whole bunch of sense to Suze. Sometimes when you have really, really significant ideas where you want to do really significant systemic change, and that can look like cultural, social, commercial, which is what Narrative Muse is doing. It's doing all of that at once. Then sometimes it takes a little while to get your story very clear. Luckily, Sue's was interested enough and I was just super keen to make sure she always knew what we were doing. So I got her involved in all of our testing. (laughs) Sue's, we're testing a thing. Do you want to be a tester? Great. Now this is what happened next. And then this happened. I could tell straight away that Sue's was very values aligned, which is super important and also seemed to know a lot of stuff. I didn't know just how much yet, but I could tell she knew some stuff. Fantastic. You talked about feeling it in your bone marrow, Suze. Are there certain things that you look for before you invest, or Mm -hmm. is it more of a feeling, or is it a combination of both? 
I love that notion that the first peoples of Australia think first from their gut and then second from their heart and last from their head. I love that you've outed that. I do think first of all it was a feeling and that feeling is anchored in somebody who they have kind of an x factor they have this whole mashup of charisma ambition tenacity and a really clear vision of where they're heading and then the other bit in the venture context is they're going after a massive market they're being super ambitious about what they want to change and it's not just about global domination, although there are some founders who have that ethos and there's nothing too wrong with that if they're doing powerful, good stuff. But it is that notion that if you're creating outsized value and impact, then the financial returns will follow with that too. And if they're not those financial returns, then what we're doing is not sustainable, particularly for angel investors. We know that in New Zealand, 80% of what any early stage venture investor makes in terms of returns from this asset class, they plow straight back into more startups. So what's not to love about that? So is this Suze Reynolds' view of investing? If I'm sitting out there as a founder listening to this, mm. is this common across angels or do you get a different experience from angel to angel? Great question, Dylan. Every angel is different and some are motivated by the financial returns, 100%, although there would be some who argue if you're purely motivated by the financial returns in this space, you better get your portfolio strategy right because on a deal-by-deal basis, you're more likely to lose money than not. There are some who are motivated by wanting to be front and centre when the first new thing rolls off the turnpike. There are some who are motivated by the collegial side of it and giving back. And bro, there was a fourth one. Susan, I were talking about this earlier. And the fourth yeah. motivation is wanting to be purpose-driven. So one is to give back to the commercial environment and business environment. And the other is to give back in some other way, which might be social, environmental, whatever your purpose-driven thing is. Yeah. And so just building on that, bro, and I guess turning to you as you were exploring that investor coming on board, were you looking for a specific type of investor? Or where was your head at? I find it really helpful to know what motivates investors because investors are people. I'm a people-driven, relationship-driven person. I start with partnership and partnership is everything. It's all about looking for mutually beneficial outcomes. That can be in a friendship, that can be in investment. If we're in the investment space, we still need to be talking about financial returns. We can't pretend that's not a thing. Obviously, we need to find ways in which we can prove that there are financial returns, but also that are purpose-driven, our values aligned, that want to see the world a better place, that have similar ambitions, all of that is really, really important to make sure that the folks that you're working with actually want to do things in a similar way that you want to do it and that you're all looking for the same stuff. Absolutely. Such a good piece of advice. And so, Suze, once you're on board with Narrative Muse, what did that investment look like? We did the pre-seed round, which was, what, 275 grand. And then last year, we did our seed round, if you're getting your terminology and that kind of alignment. So our pre-seed was 275k and our seed round was 1.3 million. While we're on the subject of investment, I just want to mention a great resource that's available for businesses who are about to start their own funding journey. Invested. It's an online tool from the NZT investment team and it covers everything you need to know about getting ready to raise capital, from doing a competitor analysis to building a financial model and preparing your pitch. It's based on experiences of thousands of other Kiwi companies. And best of all, it's free. So make sure you check it out at www.invested.co.nz. So it's just building on what Bro said about working with the right people. Investment isn't typically an exclusive relationship. 
So how have you worked alongside other investors as they've come on board with Narrative Muse? How does that dynamic work? I think communication is one of the key things here and making sure that you keep in touch with people. People like to feel like they're part of the journey as well. And as Bro said, it's all about relationships and purpose. I think people really do love to give back. People like to be helpful. So communication is a really big part of this. And we've had some lovely feedback from our group of investors about emails and the tone of our emails, because we've taken people on the hard bits and the good bits in this. There was a very tricky moment for us with some media coverage, but the amount of positivity that came out of what could be read as a slightly negative article, but actually had at the base of it a desire to make things better as well, was really gratifying and really uplifting. That was really helpful. I was just so impressed with our investors. I know that we live in a culture here in Aotearoa, New Zealand, that we're not supposed to talk about the good things we do, but I really want to celebrate that. We must have obviously done something right that by that point, our investors saw that article for what it was and saw that it was bullying. And the number of that got in touch with me personally, and probably you too, Suze, phone calls, LinkedIn messages, emails, like every way you can communicate with someone just saying, you know what, there's a silver lining in this or keep your chin up or this happened to me once too. If you ever want to talk about it, I'm right here. It was just extraordinary. And I think that it actually brought us together. Investors are part of your team. They're not separate from what you're doing and you need to bring the team together and unify the team. And our response was quite swift in how we approached this with our investors. We were very straight up about what's going on. We gave them a plan of attack very rapidly. And I think being that communicative and transparent with them really won us a lot of support. And right then we needed support. <laughs> so transparency is everything and just making sure that everyone's needs are being met. It's a great point, right? Your investors can be often your biggest cheerleaders as you go through all the ups and downs of growing a business. The flip side of that is, did you have to say no to some investors who showed interest in investing along the way? And if so, how or why did you go about doing that? I would say there aren't very many times that I've said no to folks because I'm incredibly particular about who I'll have a conversation with. So I will not have a conversation with an investor that's clearly not aligned. If they're not aligned, then we're going to get ourselves into trouble later. So why bother? It's a waste of everybody's time to start with. And then sometimes there might be people that seem like they're in the gray zone. We're not quite sure if we're aligned and then really more than happy to have those conversations. But anyone who's clearly outside of scope, why are we doing this? One of the things I love about working with Bro is we have the best conversations. We can have really full on discussions without either of us hearing you're ugly and got a big nose. It's just, we have different opinions. I could see what we're doing is really hard as an angel opportunity. This has got everything in it that's challenging in terms of b2b b2c so i was doing the whole look bro we just need to get the money doesn't matter where it's going to come from and you have this kind of scarcity mindset going on particularly when you go out to raise money and you have no idea where it's going to come from whether or not it's a 1.3 million seed round or you're movac raising fund five and looking for 250 million when you start out it's like i don't know but to come back to the point that bro was making finding that alignment, being confident about finding the people who really believe in what you're doing, even if it does take you twice as long, three times as long, it gives you more speed out of the blocks once you've got it to the point that we just made about everybody on our wing hypercharged for what we're trying to achieve. 
And it's really slow. If you're going to raise with very particular ideas about who you want to buy your company, it takes so much longer. You have to develop the right relationships. You have to find the right people. So while the outcomes are much, 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 much better because it means that you've got the right people on your team at the end of it all, just to be true to founders, anyone who's listening to this, just know that it's going to get to the end of the line and you're going to be panicking, but just hold to it. Just keep going. All that rhetoric that you keep hearing about, there's a wall of cash out there and it's just so easy to raise right now. Seriously, I want to punch people in the face who say that. It's like, it depends. If you're a Series A SaaS company that's meeting all your milestones, then rip, snort and bust, home and hosed. Or if you're a super groovy deep tech that's doing something that's quintessentially in the market, again, really easy. But there's a lot of super viable, super ambitious, solving huge problems, startups out there that are struggling to find the wedge. But you'll get there. Don't give up. And in all honesty, those that are doing the SaaS product that everyone thinks is the thing right now, if everyone's doing the same thing, they're probably not going to succeed. It's those people that aren't doing what you hear all about that are probably yeah. going to be the most successful. So yes. they're the ones you should be backing. Yeah, SaaS, I understand as a business model, SaaS works. Don't get me wrong. Yes, proven. But if you're just basing your investments on the fact that it has a particular revenue stream model, is that really the reason why you're choosing this business? <laughs> like, rather than thinking about what is the problem that's being solved and what mm -hmm. is the customer base and how big is that problem and is it being solved anywhere else? If not, why not? And that's really what you should be looking at. That's fantastic advice. Take the time to find that alignment with the right investors. I guess my follow-on question is how? How did you do the screening? You were really particular about who you would meet with around that values alignment. So did you have people that you could lean on, like a Suze, that you could say, hey, are these the type of people? Did you do desktop research? If I'm a founder sitting out there, how should I think about trying to find that right alignment? You do every single version of that. <laughs> you have a giant spreadsheet. You start putting names into the spreadsheet. Every name you can think of, every fund you can think of, every person that might help, you put it in a spreadsheet. And then you start ordering in terms of likelihood to take call, as well as are they aligned? You start color coding. We called it cash or cachet. If they had a sizable check that they were going to write, that always motivates a whole bunch of other people to write checks. And then the cachet thing was, did they have kind of cool factor that would make other investors think, well, so-and-so is investing. We had them A, B, or C lined up. Back to you, bro. <laughs> I think part of the reason why this isn't landing for me is because that was probably really important for you. <laughs> <laughs> but for me, I was looking at, I can't stop saying the words values align because it's so important. Do they want to solve the same world's problems? Do they want to find the same customers? And so for me, that was what was most important. And then Suze would come in with cash and cachet. And I was like, okay, yeah, sure. What's the most important here is who do I want to be working with for the next 10 years? And then finding those people, it can be, who do you already know? Who knows who? Going to the Edmund Hillary Fellowship list was really valuable for us. Talking to other founders who they've spoken to, what kind of relationships have they developed with other people, talking to other investors, because investors know investors. There is no way not to do this. And I think the other thing that's really important to think about is where else can money come from that isn't investors? Mm -hmm. 
This is yeah. really important. We all get so caught up in this. We have to go this one route, which is the angel groups, and they have to be based here in New Zealand. Well, where else in the world can you be looking? We actually started in the United States because we knew that ultimately a lot of our customer base, particularly for the screen producers and publishers, were going to be over there in the U.S. I'm a U.S. and New Zealand citizen. I'd like to make it very clear in this podcast, I'm a New Zealand citizen. That was a real <laughs> thing recently. It's a very long story, but if anyone wants to know more about why getting investment in the United States as an early stage company that's incorporated in New Zealand is virtually impossible, I'm happy to answer those questions somewhere else. But we had to learn that. But I'd also like to say, look elsewhere. The other look elsewhere is we actually received a government grant, which was super values aligned. What we're achieving is exactly what they're looking to achieve. So there's lots of ways that money can happen. If it's what everyone else is doing, then try looking the opposite direction because yeah. you're going in the same direction as everyone else and you are now in competition with all those people. So try something else. Good advice. And I love how close your relationship is that you're already correcting each other on here. <laughs> I've got two more questions around the dynamic of your relationship because I really do admire it. And Suze, I guess if we go back to our previous episode that you came on, you described how angel investors can become quite involved. I think you used the words, they can be a pain in your ass. So how much involvement would you say you've had along the way? And have you been a pain in bro's ass? I hope I haven't been a pain in the ass. Look, I'll give you three sentences worth. Because I love so much what they're doing and I care about them as humans, then, yeah, I would say in a real metric sense, but bro and I speak once a week. We've got a slot on a Wednesday morning and quite often, almost always, that time goes over because we do spend a lot of time on other big issues, what's going on in the world, what's going on in our lives. And then when there's a tricky spot, you know, the trickiness that we're speaking about, it blew up on my birthday. So I spent most of my birthday dealing with this. It didn't bother me in the slightest because this is important mahi that we're doing here. Bro, has Suze been a pain in your ass? No, Suze is the best thing that ever happened. That's why I said I'm saying thanks to Rory. <laughs> yeah, I think when you get the right person, and in this case, Suze has been the main investor who has been super supportive of us and me from the very beginning, that person's role well exceeds money. Money is cool. Sure, that's a thing. Hopefully they get some reward out of all of the time and energy they've put into this thing. But what they are really doing is the constant support. It's the constant opening of doors. It's the constant coming up with all of the plans and agendas and like, where are we going? What's the process like? What are all of our strategies? Coming up with those strategies together. Suze is so involved in Narrative Muse that our team knows who she is. Our team talk about how Suze is the actual wings underneath Narrative Muse. Yeah, she put some money in, but she's an actual angel. The whole angel investor thing actually has never made more sense. It's about finding a person that is willing to constantly have your back, work with you on the next step. And that piece that Sue said about how our weekly meetings often end up us talking about things that aren't directly related to business, this is just crucial. Just that concept of whakafanongantanga is so crucial. If you are not having those deep conversations every week about what's going on personally for you as individuals, then true relationships aren't being built. And when true relationships are being built, no matter what's happening on someone's birthday, they will stop what they're doing to fix it because it matters that much to them. That depth of relationship is everything. I just want to leap off that and say what I'd love people to take from this little bit of our conversation is this is across the angel network. We've got the Marcel Van Den Essens and the Serge Van Dams and the Trevor Dickinsons and the Deborah Halls and the Catherine Sanfords. 
they all have that degree of connection and attachment and emotional affinity for what the founders are doing and what the startups are doing that they're working with. They care that much. It's so inspiring. It's so energizing to be around that kind of care and that kind of positivity and that kind of generosity. And I just echo that. It's just absolutely amazing the level of support some of our angels in New Zealand are putting into these businesses. And I also love the fact bro, that you talked about as a founder, getting that support. It's not just on the business, but it's actually support of you as a person and growing you. So I love it. Hey, I want to pivot a little bit now and I want to talk about just the process itself. And Suze, is there a right time for a company to approach an angel? Is it always in those early stages? My one sentence answer to that is never too early to start building relationships. I'm very conscious that it's not always easy to build those relationships. There's a degree of privilege in this space that we need to acknowledge that might make it difficult for some early founders to find those people to talk to. When I say that, the stark, slightly un-PC way of putting it is people who've had access to capital and been lucky enough to go to great schools, to be born looking and growing up a certain way. So, yeah that can be a real handbrake for those who've got stunningly great ideas, but who just have not moved in those circles. Dominant cultures can be really exclusionary um, and make it very difficult for people to break into. There's a job of work for us to do on that front to make it more accessible, easier for people who don't have that degree of luck or privilege in their lives. Because those are the people who, to be honest with you, man, do they have some affinity and empathy for the really big problems on our planet and how to solve them. If we don't start tapping into them fairly smartly, we're all going to miss out. And it's always those who come from marginalized backgrounds or aren't from dominant culture that tend to see the problems that aren't being fixed. So there's a whole lot of business and commercial opportunities out there for all of these giant markets of underserved customers. That is the untapped space. And for those who don't have those opportunities to make these connections, it can be really hard to find your champions. I'm often giving Sue's feedback about ways that I think the Angel Association can be better to help marginalized communities. I'm like, Sue, you thought about this or that? Yeah, we got a problem. On a Wednesday morning, I'm guessing. Yeah, 100%. Yeah. <laughs> Bro, how important was pitch preparation to you when you're seeking that investment? And how prepared were you when you went to the backbencher that day? I hate pitching. <laughs> I hate pitch prep. I hate creating pitch decks. I hate it all. I don't think that it's the best method for everyone to deliver the problem that they're trying to solve and what the customers look like. Now, I totally appreciate that a pitch deck can be a total shortcut for those who are used to looking at them to learn the information so that it looks just like everybody else's and they can just sort through their files and be like, no, 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 yes, no, no, no. Like, I appreciate that. When I went to Sue's, I clearly didn't have a clear story. That's why she didn't know what I was working on. And at the time, I had a co-founder, Teresa Bass, who for some reason didn't come to that meeting, but she did drop me off. So that's quite cute. It was like my sister dropping me off and being like, good luck, I believe in you. But no, I don't really believe that the best relationships are developed through a pitch deck or through pitching. I hate the dragon's den thing. Back to marginalized communities, there are some people who were brought up in this world to learn to excel in these environments like the Dragon's Den because they learned how to speak publicly. They learned how to be the face of their class because they came from certain backgrounds and they looked a certain way. And so there's a bunch of people that just don't have those skills. They weren't 
given those opportunities to develop those skills. Again, I understand the pitch deck thing. I do understand how they cut through and help you see the important details in 10 slides. I appreciate that. I just think the way that we're asked founders to do this is deeply unfair. And I find that the best success I have ever had is one-on-ones. Give me just a one-on-one with anybody in any environment and I will have you on my team. I totally agree with where you're going. I guess the powerful thing about it was you may not feel like you were prepared, but if we go back to Sue's story about the first time she met you and the passion that you brought across, I think that you must have done a very good job at coming across as someone that was really backable. Suze, I'm just going to keep moving. As you've described historically, your level of investment in startups as, I think I get the words right, two packets of chocolate biscuits worth. Yes. What do you mean by this? I am a small check writer. And I refer to that as two packets of chocolate biscuits worth. I initially write five to 10K checks, which is what I did for Narrative Muse. My first check was 10K. And my second check in our seed round was 20K. Yeah, I'm really conscious if I'm a small check writer, particularly if I'm not leading the deal, which I haven't led. I think this is only like my second or third deal that I've really been out in front of. Writing your check quickly, signing the bits of paper quickly, not being a drag. But you know what? That 10K check in the old days was two trips to the States where you could make the material difference to that company humming. These days, it's increasingly less of a salary for a full stack developer or a data scientist, but it's employment for whatever period it is that also can add value to that startup. So don't be afraid. I'm super passionate about this. It is one of the subtexts for why I do this thing is to help New Zealanders really understand why it's important that they stop investing in houses and start investing in this kind of thing. It's just mm. so inspiring. Yeah, 100% agree. And bro, how did you get to the number that you wanted to raise? Where did that come from? And what was the thought process that went into it? all about capital strategy. So we had a minimum number and a maximum number. Susan and I were talking about how we need to raise our minimum number next time because you tend to get past that minimum and then go, do you have any more energy to keep going? Oh, I don't know. But if you raise your minimum number, then you'll get to the minimum number. So you just need to like lift that or maybe don't have a min and a max and just have one number. But the amount we were raising had everything to do with what we need to achieve to get to our next milestone. And once you're on the capital raising train, we all know that you have to raise again. So what's it going to require to get to the next raise? What do we need to be able to prove? What value have we created in that amount of time? You can hear I use Susan's words. He's been well indoctrinated. But what is it that we need to be able to show for both ourselves, our customers, our investors, and our future investors, what Narrative Muse is capable of and what the opportunities are ahead. And so If we needed to be able to prove all of that value, how much was it going to cost to do that? What resources did we need? What people do we need? Stu's made an incredibly good point that it's like, as soon as you think you know that number, this market in the tech industry with what people are costing now is excruciating because we set some numbers to that. And yep, they've just outpaced us. It's just so expensive hiring tech folks at the moment. And that's not going to change anytime soon, particularly with the entire world becoming a digital world and technology becoming a foundation for every company now, not just tech companies. Finding how much you're looking to raise has everything to do with what it is you're looking to achieve to get you to your next milestone. So you mentioned just a little bit earlier that you've made a recent move from an advisory board to an established company board. What's precipitated that change? And what was it that made you make that move and why? 
Well, first of all, just technically, we need a governance board this time because the first time we raised on a convertible note and the second raise was an equity round that immediately puts you into a governance space. However, I'd say that another reason for why I'm genuinely excited about a board <laughs> is because I'm really looking for some more teammates. I want more folks that I am working alongside of to make this company hum and to see it really succeed. And when you have an advisory board, yeah, you can be held to account to a degree and they can offer advice, but they aren't liable. They don't need it in quite the same way. Whereas right now, I really am looking forward to having a team of folks that all want the same outcomes. We're all looking to really achieve big, big, big things with this company. They come with so much knowledge and expertise. I'm really excited about them. We have Rhonda Kite, who's joining us, who comes from the screen industry. And we have Nagaraj Krishnan, who comes from the publishing space. And these two just have phenomenal experience in the commercialization of both of these sectors. So I'm stoked. And it just means that they're gonna add so much knowledge and expertise and not to just set an impossible bar for them. But it does also mean that we're working collectively to achieve really big things. Now, is there an exit strategy? You're getting investors onto your cap table. Have you had some sort of conversation say, look, this is an exit strategy we're working to, or is it more being about milestone to milestone? I am less and less talking about exits and more and more talking about value inflection points because even exits are just a value inflection point in terms of taking these companies to the world and having them create tremendous value and impact. There is a liquidity, a value inflection point that we hope will bring liquidity for those early investors 100%. And the other bit of rhetoric I put around exits is that they are proof points of value. So when you get to an exit, it's a sign that you've created something that the world wants to buy, that there are people out there that see a problem that you're solving and they want a piece of that, they want to own that and, and take it to the next level. And so in that sense, at every board meeting, we talk about if somebody came along and wanted to buy us now, how much would we sell Narrative Muse for? And that's kind of a fun discussion to have because it keeps you focused on the value that you're creating. Yeah. But it also, hopefully not sounding too sort of la-la, it sends it out to the universe that this is the kind of value that you're seeking to create. I know it does sound loopy, but I'm getting old enough and grown up enough now to see that when you put stuff out to the universe, you do give it a bit of juju to make it happen, right? We're very conscious of the relationships we're building towards creating those value inflection points. That's really, really important. And kudos to Bro for some of the relationships she's already started building and potential acquirers. And when we say potential acquirers, it is because we know that there's probably not quite enough capital. Our context here in New Zealand is not quite right for us to be able to do this all on our own. This is just part of changing the world to bring these underserved audiences and marginalized communities to highlight them so that we all have greater affinity for each other. I'd love to finish with some advice from each of you. And bro, I'll throw to you first for those founders, those business owners listening out there around something you think you'd do differently or advice you wish you'd had when you started? I find this question so hard because the only way you can learn is by doing. You learn by hitting your head against a wall and realizing that's not the way to do it. Then you try something else and realize that's not the way you do it. Then you try something else and go, oh, that worked. Okay, let's try that then. So that seems to work. I read something right at the very beginning in Founderdom about how when you're learning what the startup world is, you're learning how to grow a company, that 
The best thing you can do is to find people who have done it themselves, but are only one step ahead of you, maybe two. Because if you reach out to people who have exited a company or are 16 steps ahead of you, they don't remember how hard it was and they don't remember exactly what your problems are. They start to have this beautiful idealized version of what it means to do this journey and they aren't in the pits of despair like you are. So it's best to find the folks that are a couple steps ahead that are like, oh, that was really shitty, wasn't it? Yeah, maybe you should try this thing or that thing. But it's not about any one thing or a couple of things I would do differently. You just have to keep learning by doing and asking people what they did and what mistakes did they recently make so you don't do it yourself. Great advice. Suze, I'm going to ask you from an angel investor perspective, what's the biggest piece of advice you'd offer founders seeking their first angel investment? I got this reinforced at the abroad program wellbeing thing we did last year with fabulous support from you guys, NZTE, Callahan and NZGCP. And one of the big insights from that is appreciating that success or not, you are still a fantastic human being for having a crack at this and to not hold on to it too tightly. And Bro and I learned this too, being so intensely focused, we freaking must raise this or bust, let it go a bit, let it breathe a bit. And one of our little lessons around that was struggling with the leadership and how we're going to structure the leadership at Narrative Muse. And it was a, quite a brave thing to out and talk about. But once we'd had that conversation, everything just felt like it could breathe and so much suddenly just fell into place. So that would be my one big piece of advice. Don't attach your personal worth to this just by giving it a crack. You're a hundred percent awesome. Let it breathe. I love mm. that advice. Mm. Hey, last question, bro, for you, what's next for Narrative Muse? What are your plans for the business? We have a couple of key strategies that we're working on. Grow partnership. We know if you haven't heard through everything I've just said, it's all about partnership, 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 partnership. Everything is partnership. <laughs> it's about going out and developing true relationships with our customers on both sides, our B2C and our B2B. And we have a definition of partnership at Narrative Muse, which is shared responsibility towards a common goal for mutual benefit. So just making sure that we're working on that. Also working on grow user and engagement, which means that we are working on everything we can to make sure this product is super sticky, to make sure that people are coming back constantly. I don't want a million new users who only use Narrative Muse one time. I want a hundred people. We have more than a hundred, but I want a hundred people that come back every single day and are willing to pay for it. That's way more important to me. And so we're working on making sure we're really getting that right. And then also growing content, which is important for our space, because we need to make sure that our audiences are satisfied by what we're providing to our users. So that's our main key thing, but I cannot say how important the grow partnership part is. I know it's not as measurable. I know you can't put as many metrics to that, but it is absolutely everything. This has been a really uplifting conversation today and a great way to close out. Partnership, partnership, partnership. I've really enjoyed hearing about the steps you've both made to get the right partnership and trust between founder and investors and the challenges and opportunities you've had to navigate to get there. As you've just said, very hard to measure it, but it's absolutely everything. Suze, bro, thank you so much for giving us your time today. Yeah, cool. It was really cool to be here. Thanks for chatting. Thanks, Dylan. It was great fun. It's always good to chat about this stuff. 
That was your investment fix from NZTE. For a bigger financial fix, head to investnewzealand.nz.